The following podcast is brought to you by the Fancy Animation Research Network. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, then please do visit our website, fantasy-animation.org. When you're there, you can have a little look around, you can read our blog posts, you can listen again to some of these podcasts, and you can also join our mailing list. We are currently looking for contributors to write up short posts that cover a range of media that engage with the relationship between fantasy and animation. You are welcome to write film reviews, conference reviews, uh, reports, wider editorials, uh, and generally keep us and our viewers and readers up to date on everything fantasy animation. For more information on how to submit posts, please do visit the website and get in touch. For now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the latest instalment of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And I suppose I am Alex Sargent. You are always Alex Sargent. You'll always be my Alex Sargent. Uh, we are, for this latest episode, we are taking on, uh, well, taking on a studio that we've never really taken on before, the Fleischer Studio, and we're looking at their 1939 animated feature film, the second American animated feature film, North American animated feature film, Gulliver's Travels, based on Jonathan Swift's 18th century novel of the same name. Something we, I'm really excited to do, it's something that we talked about and yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting counterpoint to perhaps something that we've already studied, Walt Disney's uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And as we're watching it, both of us, we just met up to, to record this podcast and both of us said the same thing, which was, it's very Snow White. Yeah. It's very Snow White. Yeah. It's interesting. I'd not, I'd not really heard of this movie before. I've obviously known quite a lot about the, the original novel because it's such a seminal sort of work in the history of fantasy fiction. And it's a, yeah. it's a book we're constantly referring back to as both a as a sort of prototypical but also sort of um, precursor to modern fantasy fiction. Um, but, but Gulliver's Travels, the 1939 animated movie, I'd never heard of. And it turned, you know, it's, it's been a really interesting watch because I think, I think that quite a lot of listeners might not have heard of this movie either. But as you said in your introduction, it's the second uh, feature, US feature animation, right? Yes. After Snow White. So this is the sort of follow-up to Snow White, at least industrially, if not. Artistically. Yes. Well, well, actually, yes, industrially and, and artistically. If there's some confusion over Snow White's position as the first feature-length animated cartoon, there is a lot of animation historians that have debated that, placing it within the context of other national cinemas and, and lost films that might take the crown, if you like. This is very much the second. If, if Snow yeah. White's the first American, then this is very much the second cell animated cartoon. It's not particularly long. It's about an hour and 15 minutes, something like this. But it's chock full of, of things that as I was watching it, I thought, yeah, this will be good to discuss. It feels very, this film feels very us, um, I think, in terms of what it's trying to do, what it does with Swift's original um, novel, um, how it plays with scale. I'm really interested in the film's use of scale. And I've got got lots of notes about how it kind of quote-unquote resizes the pleasures of looking which I think is is terrific and I have questions for you which I'll hold fire on but uh, but speak to perhaps the role of intrusion and how what struck me about this film is that the fantastical intrusion is actually the human mm. because you're you're it reverses where you are in the world and so the intrusion becomes the human um, I also think industrially it plays on the, a sort of um, uh, Snow White esque play with caricature and rotoscoping, and the, and some of the set pieces I thought were very evocative of 
of, of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So hopefully we can get into some nice comparisons. While also, mm. it, it's very difficult actually when when conducting animation studies I think to everything seems to bounce off of Disney and actually again there's been a lot of tension between uh, lots of other national cinemas Ghibli is probably a good example the Japanese Disney and everything is sort of that core periphery model between Disney and then everything else so it's going to be very difficult to lapse into that but I think or to not lapse into that I should say but given the proximity of the two films it seems and, to make and, sense to compare them and the proximity of, of the, as you say the structure of it I mean the whole film has these sort of um, I mean, I, again, Hollywood's first remake no, yeah, well it's not a remake but it's definitely um, you can see the board meeting where people went right we are they had dwarfs dwarfs were very popular what can we get oh we've got Lilliputians so we'll, yep. we'll put them in instead and we'll make them with round noses and uh, yep. uh, they sing a song about hi-ho we'll sing a song what's the song called it's something like um, it's a hap hap happy day yeah 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 so something like that um, which sort of you know, similar structure and, yep. uh, um, and I thought and it actually struck me thinking back to what we said about Snow White on the podcast, which was that a lot of the film is not about the narrative. It's about these weird little embellishing scenes on the narrative, right? Yeah. So Snow White takes most of its time telling bits like the, the dwarf's party or her cleaning up the house, but the actual beats of the narrative are not really there or they're skipped over. I think the same can be said for this in terms of its relationship to the original source novel in that basically... I don't really have much to say about how it's an adaptation of a Swift novel because it's not really. Um, it takes the basic core structure of a bit of the novel and then completely plays with it, embellishes it, changes it and alters it in exactly the same kind of way. So both the way it is adapted and the kinds of things it then adapts is very Snow Whitey. And yet... So, and, and yet that, that takes me nicely to the, the, the credits. And I, I end up writing a lot on just the credits of the film because it contains some, some interesting um, lines, including the atmospheric... It credits the music as atmospheric music. Right. Uh, it surfaces a split between speaking and singing voices, which is very... And we, we might get onto that, but, but that's very, very common to have a speaking... A split in speaking and singing voices that obviously animation can smooth over because it's coming from the same character. And again, can maybe connects up to processes of dubbing. It has credits for scenics, uh, for directors of animation, and then animators... Um, but the first, the first credit is is based on this novel. I can't remember exactly what the phrase is, but it's it's based on the uh, not this, but the monumental novel, yeah. or the canonical novel. So it's very much trying to to anchor it as an adaptation. But you're saying that it doesn't really. It, it sort of takes it as a source, but then uh, a spring, you know, it's a springboard, and then jumps off into other directions. Swift's Gulliver's Travels is a really interesting novel in terms of both its screen adaptation because. I mean, everyone thinks they know the story of Gulliver's Travels because um, it's been sort of reappropriated in so many different guises. Um, and the basic component of um, Guy gets shipwrecked on an island with lots of small people on is, is usually what is adapted. And that is about one quarter of mm. the original novel. Um, and the original novels are very weird little... The reason that it's often very loosely adapted, and I'm talking about throughout cinema history, is not just this one. Melies did an adaptation of Gulliver's Travels, but again, it's very sort of tableau-esque and is focusing mainly on the sort of sight of all these creatures in these other worlds. Um, right up to there was a recent one with Jack Black, right? Uh, yes, 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 all, yes. Which all I can remember was the uh, Orange Wednesdays advert that used to play incessantly before every movie with him being sort of held up by Lilliputians and um, and having to tell everyone to switch off their mobile phone. Um, but all the adaptations of Gulliver, at least most of them, are very loose. Right. They're not faithful adaptations. Um, and it's 
I think it's because the original novel is just very odd. It's a very sort of strange product of its time. It's entrenched within sort of um, Elizabethan and Jacobean sort of uh, voyage not uh, dramas. Um, it's extremely problematic in many ways. It's um, it's a satire, but it's a satire of sort of um, you know absolutist monarchies. It's a very odd yes. piece of its time, and yet it has this gem of an idea. Guy gets washed up on land with lots of tiny people that that seems to have chimed with generations and generations of filmmakers. So so no, this isn't a, a faithful adaptation, but in a way that's quite faithful of right. cinema history yeah, to not make a faithful consist- adaptation. Consistently inconsistent. Yeah. Um, the credits say based on Jonathan Swift's immortal tale. Yeah. Um, uh, and perhaps this speaks to the longevity uh, longevity of fantasy and the kind of mythic structures. But anyway, my point or my my interest, I think, is that that. I felt like I knew what Gulliver's Travels was, having never seen or yeah. read any well, that's, adaptation. That's exactly it. And I wonder whether the book, the original book, has so many evocative images that uh, kind of evocation of small and large, mm-hmm. the interplay between those two things that I think animation turns to regularly yeah. um, as part of its um, exercise in what it can do and its creative potential. I feel like animation often plays with plays with that disjuncture and and, and miniaturization. I think that's why, certainly, with the arrival of the digital that the second and third Hollywood computer animated films are uh, ants and a bug's life. We like to see we like to see things from a different point of view and a different perspective and a different vantage point. And that that interplay in, in the Fleischer's Gulliver's Travels where you have these Lilliputians that are walking through um, the island, they think that the the, the the human figure, and we'll go on to talk about the plot, but the human figure isn't there, and then reveals that he is the land on which they walk. And there's a really interesting um, interplay between um, small and, and, and big. And, and I do think animation is very well suited to um, to that str- elasticity of viewpoint yeah. um, and that manipulation. And whether you're Tex Avery, he, he released a cartoon called King Size Canary, which is about, um, and obviously Alice in Wonderland, making sure. big, making small. There's lots of it makes perfect sense that animation would be would be drawn yeah. to the to the manipulation and the um, flexibility of scale and size. Yeah, I agree, I th- and I think I think that's ultimately um, where, where the starting point is, more than it being sort of any you know it, it takes that image that we all yes. think we know in Gulliver's Travels, which, as I stress, is about a quarter of the book. The actual novel, um, Lilliput, is one of the many islands that Gulliver visits, and we don't often get adaptations that, that engage with the others. There's one where he goes to a very, very big island. Uh, oh, I, can't, I forget the others. They're all called ridiculous names, like uh, Lap- Laputa, uh, Bininabari, Gununganang, all these sort of odd names. Um and there's one where they're like there, there are pirates. So, so the, the the original novel, really, this section of it is very small. It's you know, it's one bit of it, um, but it's a, sort of such an evocative image, right? This idea of being in a world that's exactly the same as yours, only smaller, and yes. how you'd cope with it. And that's ultimately where this film starts, right? Is what what fun can we have with that? And I guess the other interesting thing from my perspective is that it's completely not about Gulliver's travels. It's about this film sleeping. Should, <laughs> it should be called uh, Lilliput, the the island of Lilliput, uh, and the time when a giant arrived. Yeah, yeah, like it didn't say much. It didn't say much. De Gulliver doesn't speak until forty six minutes into this movie, which I, um, is I what checked. half an hour before the end. It's about half an hour before. Yeah, a seventy five minute movie. That's not that's not long. And, and so, really, what the film's interested in is the land of Lilliput, and and Gulliver. You're right. It's interesting. It's both the porthole to get us there, 
but also the intrusive vessel once we arrive. So, so okay, uh, so let's let's have a little play with some of these ideas then. Yeah. Um, so we have the opening credits. We have, as I said, there's some interesting stuff about the relationship between speaking and singing voices, which continues right through to just, just on the opening credits. Yes, we, live action moments where we get the sort of moment of a shipwrecked. It's either live action or rotoscoped. And then we get a little extract from yes. um, from Gulliver's Travel. That is actually, I think, if it's not from the original, it's at least quite faithful to the tone of the original. So novel. this is after the opening credits. It says, directed by Dave Fleischer. And we'll, we'll come on to the yeah. Fleischers anyway. Um, Isle Emmanuel Gulliver, give the faithful history yeah. of my most interesting adventure yeah. in the so South So I think sea. that is at least the beginning of Gulliver's uh, Travel. It's been a while since I've read it, if I'm honest. Yeah. But, okay, uh, so that's nice. It kind of sets it up as an anecdotal tale yeah. um, on the fifth day of November. But, but isn't it interesting? It's This is my point. It starts with, I, Gulliver, tell you of my travels and that's the, the whole novel the original novel was written in first person I did these things then I saw this then this crazy thing happened that is so not the rhetoric of this movie no. this movie as soon as it does this we see a brief shot of him being washed up on the shore then we get um, we get immersed in the land of the Lilliputs yeah so this is this is how the film the film starts you get the opening shot um, of that that sort of uh, story that's told on a scroll then you cut to you go from scroll to rolling seas and I thought they were yeah. kind of beautifully animated actually yeah. Um, yeah you have these this sequence where he is holding onto his his um, ship as as it sort of rages through the sea I think the use of light is terrific and actually it matches up to a, a song that one of the Lilliputians sings later with lyrics um, moonlight um, night ahead the use of light and shadow certainly in this opening opening shot I think is, is terrific so you have um, the rolling seas and then um, Gulliver himself is shipwrecked on an island and that's sort of that's sort of it yeah that's sort of it and then the action cuts to um, the figure of Gabby that's right um, yes. so Gabby is our in, in, for me the emotional centre of the film sure, sure. Um, but lots of kind of stuff goes through goes through Gabby Gabby is a, a Lilliputian um, and what I really liked about his introduction is he's walking, so he's walking through the island. Um, you don't realise that he is anything other than human-sized. Certainly there's nothing in there no. to suggest it. It's not, it's not like we get the obligatory shot straight away of him being contrasted with Gulliver. Gulliver, we get the, the shot of him being shipwrecked, and then it's just completely within its own world with its own sense yeah. of scale. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So, And that I really like, because he's walking through... Um, once Gulliver has been shipwrecked and sort of staggers onto the mm. beach and collapses onto the beach, you then have Gabby, who walks through with his lamp in his hand and starts shouting. Um, and there's no integration, or there's no suggestion that these are... Um, they're integrated into the same world. There's no suggestion that one is big and one is small. Um, and then that's revealed. And I think that's that's a really kind of terrific moment of collision between yeah. small and, and, and big. Um, so you have Gabby walking through. He's swinging his light. Um, the scene itself is quite kind of dark. But then he, he encounters, I think he encounters a hand. He encounters Gulliver's hand first and doesn't quite know what it is. Um, and so I really liked that m initial manipulation of or, or shifting of spectatorial position where he, he he walks onto what he thinks is land and it's ultimately the open hand of Gulliver yeah. and you suddenly realise that your vantage point has been shifted and you are now inhabiting a different uh, the same world but from a different perspective okay and you think there's something um, that animation particularly gives to such movements I know you're very interested in issues of scale in your work yes so I, yeah, I, I often go big I in thought, my I work thought, you know, I'll, I'll throw you a bone and let you talk about it a little bit yes. with a microphone thanking um. you um, <laughs> yes I'm interested in it I think within the context obviously of digital technology and how digital technology has um, offered new ways of looking there's lots of writing and, and scholarship on the virtual camera and how that has shifted 
Um, and actually it's been theorized within the context of the Baroque and Neo-Baroque that we have a flying swooping camera. Um, there's an article by Deborah Tudor called The Eye of the Frog, which is about how ca the camera can zoom into impossible places. Uh, and you know we, we can look at bullet time technology in the matrix where uh, the action is slowed down to almost a standstill and then the camera rotates around the action. Um, swooping, the swooping camera work of, of uh, Panic Room or Fight Club or yeah. um, Spectre the opening sequence of the Bond movie Spectre, where the camera... Um, often these are sequ live-action sequences that are stitched together digitally, or in some cases entirely digital moments. Right. Um, and writing... There's been lots of scholarly writing on how the digital camera has uh, removed... It's, it's, it's changed the notion of the shot as the basic cinematic unit. It has created moments where we no longer need editing. We can have a camera move replaces the edit. We don't need to cut between one shot and another location. We can have a virtual camera that stitches those two locations together. Um, and so I think the digital more broadly is interested in, in fluidity of movement. Um, but I'm interested in its relationship to scale and how it can take us down into the world of bugs or ants or and take us to ground level. Um, and while, while Gulliver's Travels doesn't doesn't do it in the same way. I do think animation plays with 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 that shift in in scale and and, and part of the pleasure. And I wonder whether that's connected to childhood and children being um, I was going to say people children being uh, interested in um, discovery. They like to discover the borders and boundaries, and they climb up the walls and they discover their own bodies and they look and and they play and they draw on the walls. And there's something about discovery that I think connects up to a. a this is this is a sort of childlike view of seeing the world from a seeing the world that isn't built for you. Children are exploring when they enter into the world. They are seeing a world that isn't built for them, and they kind of grow into the world in some ways. And there there is something quite interesting I think about animated films that play with different kinds of perspectives. This film takes us immediately into a, a large human hand, which is very much yeah. the view of a child's view of an adult hand. And I really like that as a sort of uh, a way to introduce the, the terms of the world. I mean, it's a tradition within fantasy as well, in, in that we've got, like, uh, you know, from things something touched like uh, Alice in Wonderland, yes. that we mentioned a minute That's ago, but thinking. also things like The Borrowers, or, yes. or stories from things like The Mice's Perspective, things like... Um, uh, the Rats of Nisby or The Secret of Nim, these the, these kind of um, these kind of stories, which are or, or, or I remember reading the Red Wall trilogy. I don't know if you ever read that when I was a kid, which are basically high fantasy novels, but all the characters are rats and mice and all this kind of stuff. And um, I wonder what's in that. I get it. It, it makes me think um, only because I happen to have been editing some work recently uh, in preparation for a talk. Um, about sort of the different function of space in yeah. in childhood versus adulthood, and if you look at theories of psychology and and the role of the imagination and fantasy in, in childhood development, quite often they'll talk about um, space as having quite an emotional function for children as opposed to yeah. um, functional uh, function. Uh, if there is this, if there is such a thing as a functional function. Um, so we tend to think of space as adults as places to get us from A to B, means to ends, I'll meet you in this place, we'll go over here, we'll enter this spot, I'll have to go this way and this way to get there, that kind of stuff. Whilst children have scary places, happy places, sad places, playrooms. Fantasy spaces. Yeah, spaces where they're allowed yeah. to emotionally be different. Um, and I wonder if, if recalling the perspective of, of these tiny characters is a way of trying to get you to see space emotionally rather than see it functionally. Yeah, right? the emotion of space. Well, that makes perfect sense given that shift in register yeah. between um, a storm that is very accessible to, to us now as we sit here. As, sure. as, as And the character of Gulliver is like a pretty... 
uh, yeah. that's an average looking human yeah, being. If there is, a, if there is such a thing, a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. of course. Um, so, uh, but that shift in register, and a lot of the action actually do- takes place in, in, again, the same world, but a, a world from a different viewpoint. But it's not really flat. There are moments where that shift in register in, and in scales is made apparent to us. And I think the, the introduction of, of Gulliver's Hand as seen through the eyes of, of, of Gabby, the, the Lilliputian, is one, one such moment. But a lot of the action sort of takes place at ground level. Sure. But the world itself is, or the world of Lilliput is built to their scale. So, so it doesn't the, feel like the film doesn't feel like it. Whereas there are more recent movies like your Toy Stories, your Bugs Lives, your, your Ants, other films are available. Yeah. But those movies where it, it, that world isn't built for, for toys, for ants, and so we are seeing a door really elongated because of that, those shifts in, in, in scale and therefore vanishing points and, and, yeah. and horizon lines become distorted. Um, whereas the world of Lilliput, as the Fleischers create it and construct it, is, yeah, it seems to be to scale for them and it's only ever so slightly when when Gulliver intrudes onto that world and this is what I mean about fantasy intrusion maybe we can talk a bit about that that the human itself when yeah. he enters into that space he becomes the intrusion and it, it surfaces that that kind of gnarly relationship between small and big. Told you that there was a, 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 a giant on the beach and where yeah. there he is. He said that's the giant on the beach! There isn't a moment to waste. Every last man must do all that he can. Work with the greatest of haste. So bind up its hands, its arms, its chest, its neck, its feet. And I'll do the rest. Let's go! Okay, I'm just going to pause the podcast here for a second because I'd like to address all the budding writers out there listening. Uh, we at fantasy-animation.org uh, run a weekly blog post and we get uh, lots of people reading these blog posts every week, um, tweeting them wildly, um, talking about them and sharing them with their own followers and their own listeners. So they're a real great platform for those out there who want to sort of try their hand at writing for the first time or try their hand at, at getting some more publications under their belt and don't know where to go to. If you're an early career researcher, um, somebody who uh, is a filmmaker who wants to reflect on their practice. If you're a student of animation, if you study animation, animation theory, animation history, uh, if you're a fan of animation, um, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Um, as I said, try out some ideas, send us some thoughts. Um, we'd love to get into a conversation with you about your work uh, and then we'll look to be able to publish it on our blog post. This podcast exists not so Chris and I can talk to each other. It exists a little bit for that. But so we can talk to you out there. So if you think you might want to take part, get in touch with us. Fantasy-animation.org Yeah, it makes, it makes um, their world seem small. Yes. In a way that it didn't seem before, quite yeah. literally on screen. So is it unusual? For, as I said, when I was watching it, I, I thought, well, this is interesting, that the human becomes the... We, 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 are, we are taken into the Lilliput world, and that's where we spend most of the film. And actually what happens is the human... Because he's first called a giant. There was a giant on the beach. Mm. He is the intrusion, surely. He is the fantastical intrusion yeah. for them. So I wondered how that kind of plays out no, with, I agree. with I, theories of intrusion. No, I agree, but I agree, actually. I think in many ways, um, in many ways, it's hard to place this one because I would agree, narratively, obviously, what's happening is we have, um, I guess we have a character nominally from our world going into an alternative world. Um, but actually, or emotionally, the film is schisming you to, to identify with the creature's of the alternative world yeah. and share their perspective of the intrusion of 
Gulliver. So I'm yeah. sort of with you on it in that the rhetoric of it is actually very much he is the intrusive force. He is the object of um, the other world, not not them, because he, as you say, problematizes or, or deconstructs their sense of scale. And this is where I think the film is very different from Snow White, as much as I'm very happy to talk about all the ways in which it's clearly... Which we will do. Which, yeah, which we will do, because there's a whole checklist. But one of the things, I think this issue of scale is very... I don't remember that being a big thing in Snow White. There's obviously occasional scenes where she'll pat them on the head, all this kind of stuff, yeah. or get in... Get, even when they, she like sleeps in their bed, I don't remember there being gags about her legs sticking out. There's only like Well, that. there's one, she sleeps across three or four beds, I think, if I remember. Right, right. Okay. That's not even a gag, it's just uh, she needs some sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, it's not really a mass. It's not a massive deal made of it, that we've got this sort of the dwarves and the, and the, and the humans and all this kind of stuff. But it's very interesting in it here, and I wanted to ask you: is is that a Fleischer thing? Do you know, or or, or to be honest, what, who are the Fleischer Studio? Because I know so little about them. Yeah. Um, it would be nice for me at least to know who they are and what I should be thinking about them in relationship to their um to their working method and why they why they're not just not Disney. Well, yeah. Uh, well, actually, discussion of the Fleischers leads us. I think in the case of Gulliver's Travels, because of the 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 people that worked on the movie, it it does create a nice link to Disney, an industrial link to Disney, as we said, if not an artistic link too. So the Fleischer Studios themselves are, in my mind, and certainly within the histories of animation, they are they are kind of the surreal second cousins, if you like. They they their imagery. So they're they're the studio themselves um, is comprised of Max and Dave Fleischer. So brothers Max and Dave Fleischer who run run the um um. Uh, the company it was owned or, or kind of a subsidiary if you like of Paramount in some ways now what's interesting about the Fleischer Brothers is that they created a lot of canonical characters um, and in fact more I would say more so than, than Disney if Disney Disney invested in the Alice comedies and Mickey Mouse um, the Fleischer Studios themselves have a, a sort of uh, what's the what's the, the uh, kind of top five? There were some really interesting characters that they created. Give, give, us, um, give us some examples. So Betty Boop is probably the most oh, yeah, famous okay, character. Yeah. So Betty Boop um, attracted a lot of attention within with an animation studies through issues of censorship and how she was her character that was curtailed by the Hayes Code, which you know that 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 sort of um, her skirts need to be longer she needs to wear longer sleeves. So I, I've always been interested in Betty Boop as a character who was subjected to. The same kinds of limitations or censorship as as, um, as live the action. Only, the only thing I can ever remember about Betty Boop is her cameo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Well, there we go. She says um, uh, he, she, he finds her working in the income paint club, and he said, "Yeah, um, how, what what are you doing here? This work's been kind of slow since cartoons went colour." Yeah, there um. we go. There we go. So um, Betty Boop is probably, I would say, probably the most famous, perhaps along with Popeye. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. But uh, a particular favourite of mine, uh, a particular favourite mine. Interesting. I was reading up on this yeah. film. Pop. They originally um, envisioned this film as having Popeye as Gulliver. Ah. Okay. Um, but they kind of scrapped it and went with a slightly more authentic version of the tale. But a, spi- a spinach shortage in the nineteen <laughs> and the late thirties. Uh, no, Coco the Clown. So Coco the Clown is. Is an interesting character, I think, and certainly somebody um, that I've been interested in because of of reflexivity. Now, we're not going to talk about reflexivity in the way that we always talk about reflexivity. In the way that's making me start to lose my mind. All animation yeah. is reflexive. Yeah. Um, but, and I can't remember if we've talked about the, the trope of early cinema, early animation cinema, the hand of the artist. 
trope. I, I don't. Th- we could do it again. If Let's we do it again. Um, so Don Crafton has written an article called "The Hand of the Artist," which is about a common trope within early animation, which involves the hand of the artist coming in and drawing, painting um, on a chalkboard on a piece of paper uh, an animated character. That character then comes to life. If, he, if, if listeners are finding this hard to um, to picture, he li- Chris is literally talking about a hand coming into the yes. uh, into the paint painting on the screen. And this is sort of part of early cinema or early animation's dominant image repertoire. We have a lot of images of the hand of the artist. Um, there are films called The Hand of the Artist. Um, but and, and that's actually where, where Donald Crafton in his article gets gets the name of the trope from, a, a film by Walter um, Booth, a British film by Walter Booth called The Hand of the Artist. Now, the reason for this, there's lots of scholars that have written about the reason for this, this uh, pervasive image of The Hand of the Artist. Uh, Malcolm Cook has discussed it in his article on, on lightning cartoons and in his book on early British cinema that talks about it's an overhang from an earlier form of vaudeville entertainment, the lightning sketch. I won't go, go into it into, into too much detail, but it's basically signalling a moment where we see the act of creation and then the, the created comes to life. And a lot of early animated narratives are about that interplay and exchange and ultimately the comedy of the uh, creator and the created. Um, Felix the Cat cartoons do it uh, and Coco the Clown does it. So Coco the Clown um, was a character created by the Fleischers um, in a period, sort of the late um, uh, 1910s, early 1920s. And What's interesting about him is that he was both black and white and appeared in, in colour cartoons, but he he kind of came from the Inkwell. Um, so at the Out of the Inkwell series was a series of cartoons made by the Fleischers, and as you can imagine, Out of the Inkwell is exactly that. The character would, would be drawn by the ink or jump out of the ink pot, and there was this real um, comedy in, in how animated cartoons are created, and then what the, the pleasure of those cartoons within the, the, the animated... Um, character would take over the action and he could jump off of the page or he could jump onto the hand of the artist and then the narrative shifted and, and followed that character okay so riffing on that a little bit and trying to take riff it, away taking it sort of you know we'll, we'll we'll plot a course back to gulliver's travels but we, i don't mind us if we stop off on some island let's get shipwrecked and then yeah. we'll see where um, we go is that for me what strikes me about it is obviously one the obvious thing to point out is that doesn't happen in this movie. That doesn't really get reflected on. There aren't moments where no. uh, drawings come to life or, or any kind of moment like that. But I guess what you're talking about implicitly is, again, an issue of scale in that we've got a, a, a yeah. big person coming in, drawing on small bits of paper. Yeah. Um, and that has the effect of making the creation smaller. Yes. Right. So there is or a relative or relational. Yeah, yeah, there's a relational thing between big things and small things. I mean, that's not a particularly uh, fascinating sentence, but hey, it's it's one that exists. So, um, but but I wonder if 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 what we get here is an attempt to move away from that, perhaps due to the popularity of Disney and yeah. hyper realism and these self-contained animated worlds yes. that aren't as reflexive. Yes. But you get these things fed back into a story about scale. Yeah, I'm going to say it's about self-reflexivity because it's not that self-reflexive, but it is about scale and the relationship between small things and big things. Um, and there are bits where Gulliver picks people up, moves them around, yeah. all this sort of stuff. I don't know. Am I? Is that I like the idea that the hand of the artist trope appeared in its absence, and what it did, it became it became a fascination with scale, which meant that the first two North American animated feature films are Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Gulliver's Travels. That that interest in scale yeah. and actually the relationship between humanity and and a different register of, of, of human like yeah. appearance dwarfs um, these sorts of miniature Lilliputians are are 
are of the same sort of order. There's a play with scale here that one could potentially trace back to a kind of fascination, whether it's Felix the Cat and the, the enlarged hand that draws it, or in the British context, Sid Griffiths is, is um, uh, Jerry the Tyke, where the, a lot of the early Jerry the Tyke cartoons, so that was a series in the, in the 20s, a lot of Jerry the Tyke cartoons involve the role of the hand as a theatrical stage where the, the character jumps onto the hand and we're so, seeing the animated character relationally or, or relative to the, the figure that created it. Yeah, and, and I guess like uh, you can even go back to something like Gertie the Dinosaur, right? In, in, in a way that you've got a massive dinosaur mm. being drawn on a piece of paper. Yes. Um, by someone out of shot. All this and all that kind of stuff happening. And, I'm, well, and, I'm very interested and, in and the way that I, we we both attended a talk quite recently on, on Gertie the Dinosaur, which is an old um, animation movie, 1910. Yeah, 1910 is I think 1912, 1914. Um, it's that often sort of on period. the museums. Google it if it's a very charming movie. Hey, we may do a podcast on it yeah. one of these days. Um, but, Noted. Um, <laughs> yeah, on on air meeting it would seem about future podcast uh, episodes, but. Um, uh, there's lots on that about sort of uh, jump Gurdy, can you can you move and, and all this uh, uh, artists playing with things and that was actually performed as a live stage show so there was also a, probably a thing going on this scale with that right where you've got this yeah. big dinosaur on a big screen interacting with a live performer next to it uh, yeah no, I, th I, I mean I'm very interested in in what I'm, and in fact, I'm currently writing something. This is this is Alex doesn't know this, but I'm telling him. Yeah. Uh, so I'm writing something on on the kind of co-conspiratorial relationship between uh, the artist and the the um, the art, if you like, the animated art within the context of Jerry the Type, which is something I've I've right. uh, spoken about before. Don't, uh, don't do it. Sounds rubbish. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that kind of co-conspirator. Thanks for that vote of confidence. <laughs> um, that kind of co-conspiratorial relationship that that is so made so explicit. In the hand of the artist, okay. cartoons, if you like, if we're yeah. going to call them a series of cartoons, or certainly Crafton would say that it's a it's an image that repeats a lot. Um, yes, it disappears, and we don't have that reflexivity in something like Gulliver's Travels, which is, as you say, a hermetically sealed sort of autonomous animated world. And yet, there is something about the hand of Gulliver yeah. that becomes this signature of well, his enlarged humanity. It makes me think again, riffing on this, just a you know, we're riffing. We're riffing. This, is, this is podcast it, it, material. animation is a it's, it's interesting. You know, drawing a Drawing a picture is inherently kind of interested in issues of scale because quite often you have to make an internal uh, logic within the scale of the photo, yeah. no matter what you're drawing, whether that be a huge landscape or a, or a tiny you know flower or something like that. And then you've got the relationship between that and you as the drawer, right? So there is an issue of scale. And, and also within fantasy fiction. Fantasy fiction is very interesting, or even folklore. What pixies, tiny little creatures, tiny, 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 hidden in the shadows, hidden under yeah. things... Giants, big unseen things far away, massive, controlling our forces. Those tend to be the sort of two extremes of the, of the world. One is unseen, hidden underneath the world as we are. The yeah. other points to a world controlled by external forces. Um, but both of them manifested and expressed through scale. Yes. No, I think that's, that's really fascinating. And, and that's, that's something that perhaps this film... One of it, I think that... The comedy of the film, actually, I find it quite. There are bits in it that are very funny yeah. that are about, um, and we'll get onto my favourite bit, which is a non, which is typical for Gulliver's a non-verbal bit, but yeah. involves his hand again, where he places his finger so that they can tie a knot around him. Sure. When he doesn't, so I love that. But anyway, um, there's lots in the film that is about the the 
that plays with with scale and and and, and as I said, maybe that's the that evocative image of, of big and small. My I haven't seen the Jack Black version of Gulliver's Travels, mm-hmm. but I've seen I've seen the image which is him tied up with rope. Um, that's also a key. That's that yeah. is from the original novel. It's one of these iconic images that have travelled. So how did he get tied up in rope? So we have um, we have Gabby. Let's, yes. let's journey. So we're back. five minutes into the movie right now. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, yeah. let's journey so back. I feel like our best ones, our best work, is when we just disintegrate and talk about something <laughs> sure. else, and now we're sure. now we're back. Um, so yeah, Gulliver himself is is um, shipwrecked. Gabby finds him and then runs back to tell um, the community, the village, the rest of the islanders um, that there is a giant on the beach. Uh, and there's a really nice, there's a couple of really nice animated flourishes, I think, um, which I don't wouldn't say necessarily typically Fleischer, but but there we go. Um, where Gabby runs back, having said there's a giant on the beach, he runs back to the village and um, you get these kind of. Um, lines of paint that show speed. I love that, and you can kind of see the mm. the paint on the on the cell. Um, so he rushes back. Um, there's to lots the of king, right? To the king. Now this is who's preoccupied. T- typically, I've not remembered any of the names of the characters in this movie, but there's a king who's trying to uh, get his daughter to marry, or or his daughter will marry uh, the son of another king. Yes. So we have Princess Glory and Prince David are, are to be married. Right. Um, and it's very, this was a, a moment where I thought, okay, we're getting to Shakespeare territory because you have the two, the, the son and the daughter getting married, uh, Princess Glory, Prince David, um, their parents don't get on. Don't get on. That's right. Because they, there's a, there's a, uh, um, an argument about which song should be played at their reception the next day or the ceremony the next day. That's right. Um, this is a big kind of cause for concern, and this causes a bit of friction between the two families. So, um, so if there's any capturing of the spirit of Swift, there's, there's something in this satiric thing where they basically nearly have a war over this, right? Yeah. Over, over which song plays at a wedding. In that, quite a lot of what the Swift novel does originally is, is try to dramatise the uh, absurdity of medieval... Not medieval's not right. Of late modern society. uh, Of early modern society. uh, By sort of having this figure, Gulliver, watch over their problems. And quite literally, they seem inconsequential because they're being fought yeah. out but they're also often fought out over inconsequential things like cake mm. or or yes. you know who wore the right hat in the right way all this kind of stuff so i think there's a certain spirit of that in this kind of you know they end up going for a war because they can't agree on the song that's going to play at the wedding absolutely um and this is where so uh, so i should say we're recording this uh, late march 2019 i'll say no more Right, 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 right. Yes. <laughs> um, so yes, so we have this. Gabby spends a lot of, I think, the first twenty twenty five minutes trying to convince the the his fellow Lilliputians that there is actually a giant there, uh, mm. and that the, uh, there needs to be a mob it's, to go and. It's not only it doesn't fail to convince them for about twenty minutes. They're just not listening to it. No. Every like minute, he'll go. There's a giant, and then the plot will carry on. I can't <laughs> believe they just didn't listen to the will of the people. So we have this mob um, that then goes to the beach to then capture to then capture, uh, and this is this is where I think yeah the most perhaps one of the most iconic images is when he's being progressively. Um, kind of tied to this structure that they build. I, this is probably my favourite sequence in the film because um, I've been looking at other animated cartoons of this period in relation to um, some of the kind of processes of, of labour. So shoe design, I'm interested in, in the, kind of the cobbler and the thief, whatever, these kinds of things. Mm. Um, there's some fantastic stuff where they're, where they're building the contraption that's going to take him back to the village Um so that he can be paraded, I guess, as as, as 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 this kind of fantastical creature. That's interesting. He's been he's the alien here. He's the he's the anomaly. Um, 
there's some terrific stuff where they're building, you know, they're building stuff. And yeah. what, what's really interesting, I think, is that a lot of these sequences uh, and a lot of other cartoons as well are the kind of comedy of putting stuff together. So you, yeah. you have these two characters that are building stuff. And, and, and they're episodic, they're non-narrative. Yeah, exactly. Again, this is what reminded me of Snow White. All They're all... They're, I mean, they're, I probably it's quite practically... I, I, I sense this film, and I think I, from what I've read... This film was rushed through because basically the Fleischers were trying to get Paramount to let them make a feature for about five years, and then Snow White came out and they said, "Absolutely, you can make one. We need one now." Yeah. Uh, so, but but I can understand that these kind of episodic non-narrative sequences, where there's a certain logic of the three minutes, but it doesn't really have to fit in with the rest of it, yeah. are quite easy to do in this kind of if you're splitting the labour yeah. you don't have to worry about what happened in the previous scene you can just come up with on. gags about what it means to, to paint something absolutely. red and absolute, accidentally I've painted your face red and yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. I've done something else yeah. Um, yeah no I think that's absolutely right There's there's and actually maybe that's what connects back that's that's our that's that's number one in the how does this connect up to Snow White well, of number which one there is are that. several number two is that all the Lillipudians look like dwarfs and when we mean, when we say that we mean rounded character design yeah they look like Snow White dwarfs they look like big round noses um, white beards yeah. stuff like that yeah. okay yeah, I, yeah there's a lot of that I think in the, at the level of character design I've got a note here rounded character designs mm -hmm. absolutely there's something quite kind of playful and cuddly about and the, the song Lillipudians. I was thinking about earlier actually is called All's Well and it's oh, literally right. like All's Well All's Well this isn't Snow White we promise or something like that right, like, okay. it's very very like um... well what we'll do is we'll now edit the real song in for the podcast um, to see how beautiful that sounded yeah. well what a rainy Yeah, so I think the character design. I've also got a note about rotoscoping. Of course, this makes us. If Snow White is a film that that uses rotoscoping, the filming of live action footage and effectively tracing over it using live action as a as quite an explicit reference point. Uh, Gulliver himself is one of uh, kind of uh, two or three characters that were r r rotoscoped. Yeah. Um, but that's uh, very clear from the. I think he looks more rotoscoped than the figure of say Snow White yeah. does in in. in but that gives a degree of realism. So yeah. he he's, he marks out the sort of visual realism. Him and the backgrounds, I think, are very very kind of hyper real. And then you get the miniaturized Lilliputians at, yeah. at the place where anarchy reigns. It's less real. It's less. I guess that feeds back into scale again, and you've got yeah. sort of one register of realism, one register of fantasy, but it's operating at the level of big and small. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, um, no, I think that's that's right. There's there's something there's something very I don't know that that maybe adds to the interplay between. Snow White and the Dwarfs and Gulliver and the Lilliputians, that mm. there is a collision here between a realist register and an animated register mm. that is then supported by fantasy and animation, sure. which is then supported by scale. Yeah, which, which is, is then why supported we... by us on this podcast exactly. as we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I am taller than you. Yeah. Um, so uh, the other note I've got <laughs> it's about... It's sad but true. It, um. <laughs> the other note I've got about um, Disney is sound. Um that there are a couple of set pieces, and I think the the moment where they the mob go to find Gulliver before yeah. they then tie him up and, and um, tie him to I think a kind of cart that they build out of wood and then then take him back to the village. Um, the use of sound, so they are they are walking with um, lights and lamps and fires and yeah, stuff like yeah, that, yeah. very much like this the dwarfs when they return to the cottage to find mm -hmm. Snow White sleeping across these three beds. Um, and I was thinking about the use of sound, how 
how when the sounds, when the lamps turn off, sorry, that you have the sounds of xylophones. And I was thinking of that technique of Mickey Mousing, and, and there was a real, which is a term used to discuss animated sound, where there was a really strong fidelity between sound and image that would later be destabilised by Carl Stalling and, and Warner, like Warner Brothers Studio, where things get a bit more anarchic. Right. It's, it's things sound like rather than a fidelity to. Um, so there's some really nice uses of sound effects when they're stepping over the, the body, dun, 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 to all these sorts yeah, of sounds yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Um, that reminded me very much of, of Snow White, and as I said, when the dwarves return to the cottage and everything is done non-verbally mm. and it's done through sound. So I yeah. thought that was a really nice kind of link up, I think, between Snow White and, and Gulliver's Travels made a couple of years afterwards. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then, then you get the spectacular moment where they sort of tie him up yes. and um, try to... to Tame the Creature, the classic moment from Gulliver's Travels. Um, Gulliver breaks free, of course. Um, they soon discover he's not an evil giant. He's uh, someone who could help them. Yes. Um, and he returns to their sort of castle. Yes. Um, one other note I meant to, to, men meant to mention is, is Fleischer animators. So what's interesting, perhaps one of the things that speaks to the in an industrial interplay between Disney and the Fleischer Studios and ultimately Snow White and, and Gulliver's Travels is uh, some of the, and, I, and, I, and I'll read off a couple of names, uh, Grim, Natwick, Al Euston, uh, perhaps most famously Seamus Culhane, um, who worked at both the Fleischers and famously, he was the lead animator on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs whilst also working on Gulliver's Travels. And then their follow-up film, which we talked a little bit off air, but Mr. Bug Goes to Town. So the, the Fleischer Brothers, or Fleischer Studios film that was released in 41, 42, that kind of period, um, but didn't do as well as as Gulliver's Yeah, so Travels. this one did quite did pretty well at the box office, right? Gulliver's but, Travels, but, yeah. but but from what I've understood it, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it was submitted late, so Paramount rinsed uh, for the Fleischer Studio of all it can in terms of its contract. Yes. Um. So although it did quite well for Paramount, the Fleischer Studio didn't make very much money off it. And then the second, the movie they thought they'd hoped to get their money back on was Mr. Bug Goes to Town, yeah. which it didn't, which did very badly at the box office, and that was sort of the end of that in terms of the Fleischer Studio making features. Yes. Um, so there's only two of them, um, and it's interesting. I haven't seen Mr. Bug Goes to Town again. Another future podcast episode potentially, um, but it, it, just from the title alone, scale. Yes. Yes. Again. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know this, but it suggests that they are interested in scale throughout both their feature movies. So that's, uh, yes, that's, uh, that's one to to look out for in the future and things like that. No, I don't really thought about it in this in in, in this way. The the I, visually how striking it is to play with something that's big and small. And yeah, Mister Big, uh, Mister Bug goes to town again. I, I haven't seen it, but. Uh, it seems to be something that's definitely invested in in uh, a different kind of register of, of scale. Um, Which, again, I, I would say, although Disney has small characters, quote unquote, that's not really Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, it's or, not. Really, yeah. I guess it's quite interested with Jiminy Cricket. It has moments where Jiminy sort of has a bed in a in a, you know. I can't remember, but there are moments in where Jiminy Cricket sort of makes makeshift uh, yeah. adult big objects out of small little things and plays with. Yeah, it well, that actually sleeps in Pinocchio's hat and all this yes. kind of stuff. Well, that's know? that's an interesting. That brings me to to I suppose. Um, uh, all roads lead to Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Um, so Basil the Great Mouse Detective, a 1980s Disney movie that we're has... just clocking up podcasts, future uh, podcast we entries. Are, yeah, um, we are. So that that what's interesting about that movie is that it plays with it's our London of human scale and so forth, and the climax of the film is in the in the cogs of, of Big Ben. But a lot of the film takes place um, in 
Basil's home, and it is again a home of his skills. There's not that kind of manipulation of objects, um, which I'm also interested in the, the repurposing of a function, if not the materiality of an object. Um, often animation, it makes sense that it would play with the the material of an object, but part of the pleasure of, of I would say more recent animated films is that the repurposing of familiar objects in new ways. You get a little bit of that in Gulliver's Travels. So when they are kind of tying him. Well, actually, kind of tying him up, but exploring his body. That's yeah, kind of quite yeah. interesting. When they are they are exploring his body, and you get some nice images of them standing in front of his enlarged shoes, um, being held by his hands and so forth. He gets wheeled in back to the village, and they play with his buttons, and buttons become a kind of a big in their world. Yeah. Um, so there's some interesting stuff I think in the film about how it it takes it uses Gulliver as an enlarged figure within their world, and perhaps. Uh, explores a new way of I mean is this like you know and if, if animation is a way of seeing the world fantasy is a way of seeing the world mm. we've got something here about scale and yeah. seeing a human body from the ground up that's really interesting isn't yeah, it and yeah. seeing getting close to its its hands and, and, and maybe seeing parts of the human body that we wouldn't normally focus on with any great sort of integrity uh, the world of this of Gulliver's Travels allows us to see humanity on its side on its back up close from below yeah, I think I think you're right. I think and I think that's that seems to be uh, the Fleischer gaze. Yeah, <laughs> to want to, to, to be Fleischerness. Um, yeah. Yes, is that um, is that that seems to be a very that seems to be apparent in a lot of the visuals of this movie in a way that I don't think is quite emphasised in other feature films from this period that I've seen um, yes. elsewhere. Um, I feel like we should finish the plot off before we. Um, before yes. we before we uh, depart Lilliput. So, yes. yes. Um, um, so okay. So after well, I, I think we've got to the point where Gulliver um, escapes, um, and so he wakes up from his what is quite an elongated slumber um, and breaks free. And you said that he utters his first word. Or Forty six minutes in, I I checked. Yeah. Um, and then I'm very he, good at this. I once had to spend a morning of my life counting how many times Arnold Schwarzenegger said something in Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. I think it's something like eight. So. Well, I was going to say I think um, in the new, in the latest uh, Bourne movie, Jason Bourne, Matt Damon says like seven minutes worth of material right, okay, or something fine, like this. Fine, fine, fine. Um, so, but well, what, here in Gulliver, here in Gulliver, um, yeah. Sorry, back to Gulliver. What, what are we doing? The Gulliver ultimatum. <laughs> so uh, Gulliver himself, um, like I think there, there's. Certainly when he breaks free, he's first seen as a threat, uh, but progressively becomes a mediator between the families whose name I can never remember. Um, and so then he becomes this, yeah, kind of... On the one hand, the Lilliputians are asked or, or are being ordered to kill, to kill him. Um, and as part of that exploration of his body, we see his buttons, his shoes, but we also see his, uh, his pistol... Um, and then really the the kind of rest of the movie, I think, is about the kind of, well, I was going to say the interplay or the relationship between the two families. Um, yeah, the, the evil king, uh, whose name I've forgotten, um, he sort of, he escapes the, the royal palace and, yes. and, and flees back to wherever he lives. Uh, and he decides to send uh, spies into Lilliput to capture Gulliver or kill Gulliver. Yes. Um, and these spies are dressed in great big hooded yes. costumes, uh-huh. uh, like a big hooded cloak with a... I mean, they're not witches. Revealed, they're not witches. And big noses. Yes. Uh, and they're definitely not witches. Exactly yeah, right. So you've got these three sort of odd henchmen... Uh, running around looking to all the world like the the Wicked Queen from Snow White. I mean, they look very, um, they look very like. Because there's a bit where they they confronted by the um, 
they're confronted by the pistol. Yeah. And as you said, they're all draped in these black these black cloaks and things with, the with these big noses those, sticking out. These yeah. big noses. So they are the they are the kind of and, and again that's that's a really nice counterpoint to to Gulliver. And I wonder whether Gulliver himself, because of his humanity, his which comes from his aesthetic style and the fact that he's a rotoscript and there is a human center. All these kind of debates that we would have 60, 70 years down the line with motion capture technology. Uh, there is something about his humanity that is appealing. Um, to us as the audience, and also just the way that he's designed in terms of his his shadow. Yeah, he... I didn't. Find, I found him quite bland. In yeah. A way of, in a in a way, I'll stop doing this in a minute because it's boring. But in a way that I find Snow White quite bland. In like the you don't watch Snow White for Snow White, or yeah. at least I don't think you do. You watch it for the dwarves. Yeah, exactly. And the animals. It, and, 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 and that's uh, maybe part of the. And we talked about this on the podcast for Snow White. The kind of criticisms of Snow White that if animation can do all these amazing, wonderful things, why would it do humanity in that way? Yeah. Um, and so Gulliver himself as a character when he and there's lots of play stuff that he can his breath can can send off a boat into the sure. into the sea. So that's all like, fun. It's just when he says, does or thinks anything. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so when he's a personality Yeah, when he's got any kind of personality on screen, he doesn't really have a personality on screen. Yeah. Um, but again Which I, again is very different from the novels. The novel it is his personality that's presenting all of this. Yeah, I mean he doesn't really one when what struck me is that when he awakes and when he is then yeah he captured yeah, with half an hour to go yeah, 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 yeah. But, but even then with half an hour to go the film isn't really interested in him as much as it is the the, the Lilliputians reactions to him yeah. there are moments where he's walking through the town um, or the city and, and he's he's kind of interacting with the world around him he picks up a bell at one point mm. and the, a Lilliputian is, is kind of trapped inside um but what's interesting is that a lot of his humanity is truncated. So you often see see him see just his feet, which again, if you're interested in, in kind of Tom and Jerry cartoons, characters' yeah. feet and shoes are the are the kind of dominant image there. So a lot of his humanity is truncated, and you see these big. Um, you often see see shots from behind or from below where he's walking through Lilliput, certainly towards the end, and he's marching through the town at the end, followed by all these these hordes of, of Lilliputians. Um, looks like he's wandering through a miniature village, um, yeah. but then and then walks into the sea. You know, he yeah. he walks into the sea as he's being cheered off by all the the kind of townsfolk, and they are kind of throwing. I was going to say throwing, but they are stuff is being fired at him mm-hmm. um, and he becomes this sort of yeah mediator between the two he can withstand a lot of these he gets a lot of arrows in the arms but he's never really a threatening character I no. don't think he's not he's not visually he might be a, a threatening character but actually narratively he picks up the boats towards the end and he starts pulling them kind of bringing them together well, in many ways it's, it's, it's good that he's a boats person because he's a vessel isn't he he's a vessel to get us to Lilliput yes and well get, narratively you mean yeah. narratively he's a he's the vessel that gets us to gets us to Lilliput and then creates an impetus for us the film to stop yeah um, one um, of the things I wanted to ask was about the the kind of climactic sequence of the marriage or the union that is sure. that is taking place within his hands. Again, so we're back to the hand of the, the human. The, the, um, yeah. a, a film that has a, a and here we go with the first proper pun: uh, a human, the human touch. The film, the kind of human touch yeah. of, of the of the film. So the film itself ends um, with the union of the two previously fractured families and it is Gulliver who has has acted as this sort of um, go-between between the two the two families um, but then again a lot of it is played out through the actions and the anarchy of of the Lilliputians and and you get just before the end of the the film you get Gabby in a, in a kind of in a little fight playful fight mm-hmm. sequence in, with another kind of Lilliputian and then it ends in a kind of I don't want to say classic Disney way but you have 
the union on top of the hill and and actually the, the king and queen so the, sorry the princess gloria and prince david are very disney-esque certainly the princess looks looks yes and, and again i'm not gonna say looks like the person who you think uh yeah, the, we would say at this point that w- who should not be named yeah. um she who yeah, must not be named she who must not be named um but yeah it's a it's a it's a film that's sort of I don't know, and as as Gulliver, well, as they sail off into the sunset at the end, it's a film that is. I, I like the fact that it it evokes so strongly something like Snow White, um, how it is drawn to the pleasures of scale, how it plays with humanity as an is as an intrusion. Um, but there are also and, and that register between humanity is manifesting Gulliver and then the Lilliputians, whose bodies are a lot more flexible and and they kind of transform. There's a moment where Gabby turns red out of anger, yeah. um, and he just. Gulliver wouldn't do that. Gulliver wouldn't transform into this kind of red character. So I don't know. There's something about the, what different characters can do. And I do think that in Gulliver's travels, Gulliver himself, as you said, right at the start of the podcast, is sort of sidelined a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really where we're seeing the animation on screen is is the way in which the Flyshers are playing with the design and the behaviour of the Lilliputians who are themselves um, spaces of creativity in a way that perhaps Gulliver is not as a I'm- character. As a sort of final note, now we've got to... I'm interested in... um, And I think this is a conversation we'll pick up again another time. But I'm interested in the place of the Fleischers and the place of this movie within, I guess, animation history, but broadly popular popular cinema. In the You know, reading about this, I'd I'd never heard of this movie. And when you pitched it, I was like, good Lord, that sounds really interesting. We should do that. Um, And looking at it, like, why, why haven't I heard of it? Well... Was it a flop at the time? No. It did rather well at the time, actually. It, 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 so it's not an issue of that. Um, what, what Was it... Um, I guess critically successful... Well, this is... You know what I'm going to say. If the film was nominated for two Academy Awards for, for music... Yes, uh, lost it, out to Wizard of Oz, of course. No, uh, um, the so same year. Over the, over the rainbow. So yeah. we got that reference in. Well done. I nearly didn't do it. You are week. welcome. Um, but, but, so it, wasn't, it was pretty well received. It, was, it did well at the box office... Um, it, and, had a, it had a and, spin-off. And, and what I'm reading is that in the 50s it had quite a bit of a resurgence because it it, it lapsed into a television licensing and it did a sort of hard rotation on television quite a bit. Yeah. So all the factors that normally make a film explain why a film is so culturally ubiquitous yeah. are here. Yeah. And yet I, I would venture a lot of our listeners have not heard of this movie unless they're animation historians or animation enthusiasts yes. i mean there could be could be a couple of reasons um i mean thank you for you don't actually have to answer that but go on yeah i wonder it? whether the the snow white syndrome which is the late you know the sort of it's it, it's a lot like snow white has, has stolen its thunder a bit i don't know that's 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 a kind of yeah, hypothetical yeah, maybe um I mean, I don't. We know. like to create this narrative of of, of Disney being no, the only true. studio at this time that can make. Well, clearly not. That, you know, which is obviously not true. But maybe that's part of the reason that we've now suppressed this back into the sort of ethos. I mean, it's a, it's a bit clumsy to watch for modern tastes, but so Snow White. Yeah. Well, and obviously this. Um, we should also add that the Flashes themselves made a version, a very successful version of of Snow White that featured Betty Boop called Betty Boop in Snow White oh, really? um, as part of their kind of Betty Boop series um, and that was actually 1933 so that predated the Disney version yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this I, mean, I don't know it's it's if we think of, of the I mean the Flashes are very important to the history of, of animation golden age animation of the 30s and 40s um, they have got a little bit there are studios we would associate with particular periods Disney maybe in the 40s um, United Productions of America in the 50s, 60s, that sort of more modernist design. Um, 
I don't. I mean, I don't really know. Is there something around the there surrealist is. style of the the Fleischers that doesn't? Um, but then the, the surrealist style of something like Felix the Cat has, has endured in a, in a in a way. So, yeah. I mean, I don't I, know. The only thing I can wonder is actually it, maybe the question isn't why hasn't this survived, but rather why has Snow White? Because if you think about it, yeah. it's a cartoon made in 1939. Why should it survive? Um, you know, so why did Snow White survive? And then you perhaps the reason is is because Disney has prolonged. You know, it, it still exists. And it is able to resell its back catalogue through things like the theme parks and mm. the Disney Princess series and all this kind of stuff. And the Fleischers, because they died a death um, in the sort of into the fifties and the sixties, yeah. they haven't had that opportunity to um, continue to sell themselves and their back catalogue. Yeah. So quite naturally, they've they've slipped a bit more into obscurity. I mean, I think it could could have something to do with the style, you know, the, the hyper realist style that came to define a lot of animations ability to come right up close to, to real life live action footage. Um, right. If we're thinking about the surrealism, the looseness of the Fleischer's style, the elongated, um, they, they are, if, if Snow White has a realistic quote unquote looking witch that tra or queen that transforms into a witch, the Fleischer's never, never began as humanity. They, they, they pitched up their tent once the transformation had already taken place, yeah, maybe. they're very much in the kind of really stuff. Um, and, and yeah, because you're kind of reading about it, that how how uh, as a 1980s fantasy film called Forbidden Zone, apparently, right. that is a pastiche of the Fleischer's studio style. Okay. That style, are we saying, are we going to be so bold as to say that the Fleischer's style was was too surreal and too fantastic mm. for an audience that perhaps were. I don't know that were that were interested in. Or I, don't, I don't know. This is a hypothetical thing, um, but whether there was something around animation's realist potential was was the thing that was cherished, and something that was too surreal and too zany and too loose, and um, that Fleischer's aesthetic might not have gelled well with an audience now familiar with a hyper-realist Disney formalism. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, well, I'm glad we've at least had the opportunity to, yeah. to watch it and think about it. Yeah. I, I'm very keen to do some more in the future, so I'm sure we, this isn't the last you've heard of the Fleischers, yes. uh, at least not on this podcast. Um, uh, so we'll return, I don't know in what form, but we'll return to maybe some of their earlier work or we'll yeah, do that'd be great. Gums to Town or something like that and, and continue to unpick this idea of a, of a Fleischer style. Because there, there's, there's not that much, I should also add that there's not that much written on, um, it's, it's, a gap, it's a sort of gap in the market. Mm. People, lots of people have heard of the Fleischers um, and their characters, but there's certainly scope to do a bit more kind of prodding and probing as to what, what they Well, kind of we, we shall prod and probe away, as, yes. we, as we always do on, on the podcast. Um, but I think for this uh, episode, at least, um, we'll, we'll have to sail away. You can, of course, find us on fantasy-animation.org. Um, we're looking for blog post entries, so please um, do get in contact. We'd love to hear some ideas if you have some out there. Um, alternatively, take part in the conversations on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, um, or on our Facebook page, which we aren't as good as updating, but we must get back no, to No, give, give us a search. Send us. We've had a few messages um, from people pitching blog ideas, so if you want to um, write about your favourite fantasy animation television show, your favourite fantasy animation feature film you've been to a conference you've read a book um, fan convention yeah absolutely uh, cosplay you're a up. practitioner um, get in touch because we'd love to love to hear from you um, we can bat around some some potential ideas and uh, yeah get get your, your stuff on the website yeah Fleischer Studios uh, blogs yeah there, there we are. go we'll start with that that's a call to arms that's a call to arms <laughs> um, until then uh, thanks very much and we'll see you next time bye, bye.
sometimes I 